Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Very excited to have one of our most popular guests ever by far back on the show very quickly after his star turn a couple shows ago. Paul Sakal of The Age is here. Paul, thank you on behalf of all the listeners stuff we were hearing for, first of all, for your help on the first show and uh, making sense of this complicated Novak Djokovic saga, which we now think is at its end. Finally, to catch up with you here today on Monday, Novak Djokovic is on a plane or on several planes on his way out of Australia to somewhere in Europe. Thank you for being on here. How, how are you? How are you doing? And uh, how's how is your feeling now that we've reached a, a, a pretty clear finish line in this story, a resolution? Hey, Ben, I, I just can't believe it took this long since we last spoke to actually get to a resolution. I thought every day after he first got released from court, I thought the government would announce that day that mm. he was being detained a second time, but they dragged it on for a whole week. I think partly because they wanted to get their legal case incredibly strong, but also because I think they wanted to uh, give him as little amount of time to challenge over the weekend before he actually played on Monday as possible. But unfortunately, that dragged out and made it a much longer process for you and I. Um, I'm feeling good, but I know you have to still cover two weeks of tennis, whereas I'm just going to use my ground pass, media pass, to go and watch a lot of tennis and write nothing. So I'm feeling pretty good. How are you? I'm, I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm tired, I'm a little bit daunted by the fact that I have a whole new starting line for another marathon Grand Slam coverage coming right up. But good, you glad you'll be there. Hopefully, I, I, we can uh, run into each other on site. That'd be good. That'd be good. We left off, we did our first show with Novak Djokovic in his initial detention um, when he was being held at the Park Hotel, awaiting his appeal hearing. Djokovic, I think to the surprise of a decent number of people who I was talking to before the hearing, won that initial appeal hearing. On, on procedural grounds, the, it was very much about the sort of process of it rather than about if his exemption should or should not have been valid, which is what the reason he got stopped at the airport was initially. Can, can you just sort of back up to that, to that date um, on the Monday and a week ago and talk through, I guess, how, how Djokovic, you know, got to essentially get out of jail card and was able to, to be free after that? Yeah, I think there was a misunderstanding about what that initial case was. And I think the media probably, and, and I probably played a part in feeding that misunderstanding because it was, I think the media pitched it as a big Djokovic win. It was seen as um, a final marker and that he would be free after that. But in, in reality, he didn't win the case on the merits of uh, the actual reason for his visa being revoked. He actually won, as you just said, on a very technical procedural fairness basis in the migration act and in many migration cases they're often decided on very technical matters of whether the person who's been deported or being detained or whatever is actually taken through the process in a very very uh, uh, regimented way and given procedural fairness at every point there was a border force officer who told Djokovic at about 6am I think that he would get until 8.30am to call his lawyers and call Tennis Australia and do all these other things that he claimed would be able to bring out more documents or more evidence to substantiate his exemption. And then at about 7.30, that same officer came back in and effectively said to him, uh, an hour is not going to help you. You've got, you don't have the sufficient documentation. So let's just get this over and done with. Now, the government, uh, the federal government internally is, has been really, really angry at that border force official, because if they did give Djokovic the right amount of time, and gave him until 8.30 to do all those things, he probably would have never got that second hearing and he probably would have been uh, sent home on that Monday and this whole thing would have been cut short by about half the time. So 
that border official who who mucked up during that morning really dragged this out and created the, the week-long saga. And then on the second case, the government, in what Djokovic's lawyers called a, quote, remarkable shift, entirely changed their argument. Yeah. Uh, and they, they dropped all the questions about the exemption and about the travel declaration and all of those technical fact-based potential misdemeanors on Djokovic's part. And they use this entirely new, much more subjective argument that he is a risk to public health, a risk to the good order of society based on his uh, vaccine scepticism and how that might ferment anti-vaccine views, which yeah. I think the government still has a lot of questions to answer about why that became their argument. Maybe we'll get to that later. Yeah, definitely get to that later. Djokovic wins this initial hearing on procedural grounds. Uh, but then what kind of gets me then or confuses me is that he was then free to to go. He was then able to go to the Australian Open, got there that evening, practiced, was able to stay at his normal accommodations around the city, was back on the court, you know, several times during this. But he still doesn't meet the government's entry requirements in terms of being unvaccinated. And so that's what I didn't understand is why he was essentially given this this reprieve, why he wasn't redetained fairly immediately if he's someone who you know, is only in the country because of a, a technicality, essentially, or a procedural ground, um, but his on pa- but paperwork still wasn't there. Why Why do you think that was, why couldn't they just recancel it right away as a, I guess it came later on a ministerial level, but shouldn't the Australian Border Force have some review capability of, of its own? It's it's a good question. So that, that initial revocation was effectively struck out by the fact that he was not offered procedural fairness. And on that basis, that decision was cancelled. And we expected that once Djokovic was was released, I think he was released at about 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. on that Monday, we we thought, and it was being reported, that he was going to be immediately detained again and he would be taken through the process again in a procedurally fair way and he would be detained on the basis that his medical exemption was not valid because the government has always maintained that his medical exemption is not valid. They didn't didn't do that. And I think... And this is, this is now just speculating, but it's speculation based on what legal experts have said and what some in the government have said as well. We think the reason they changed their argument entirely is because the issue of the medical exemption, although the government believed they were on, on good solid ground in saying that his medical exemption was not valid and that was a clear rule, there was grey area. The vaccine advisory panel in Australia does say that people who live in Australia can be exempt from a vaccine if they've had a prior infection, but that rule doesn't apply to people at the border. But the border rules were never really published in any clear way. So Djokovic's team and Tennis Australia relying on the vaccine advisory panel's guidelines for Australians might have passed mustered in a court with a judge who may have believed, look, they were going off the documentation that was public, uh, so they did everything right, and we're not going to boot him for making this error that they couldn't have known actually was an error. So if the government went back to court on simply the basis that he did not have a valid medical exemption, I think they thought there was a risk that they would lose again, even though they thought they were right, they, they thought they would lose again. So they formulated this case over a week that was based on this very subjective, as I said earlier, belief that he's a risk to public health, which becomes very, very difficult for a judge to throw out because as one of the judges said yesterday, the Chief, ju- Chief Judge um, James Alsop, uh, it's not within the purview of the court to question the perception and common sense of the Immigration Minister 
as to what the effects might be of a person's presence in Australia. That's a much, much more difficult legal legal threshold and legal task. So that, yeah, so it took several days. You're right. We were waiting every day thinking, oh, this will be the day they're going to, he's going to make his move. So we had the initial appeal ruling on a Monday, nothing happened on Tuesday, nothing happened on Wednesday, nothing happened on Thursday. And then late Friday, uh, just before 6 p.m., uh, we finally got the statement from Alex Hawk, who's the immigration minister, saying that he was recanceling Chukovic's visa and did it on sort of public order grounds and that it was for the maintaining of a society, basically making it, like you said, you have more about opinion necessary in some ways than facts. But there, there were a bunch of facts that got discussed along the way um, that I guess, yeah, didn't ultimately pr- prove relevant, like his checking the wrong box on the Australian travel declaration form, uh, saying he hadn't been in any, any done any travel in the prior 14 days to his arrival in Australia, which was not true because he had traveled between Serbia and Spain in that time. And also the whole looking into the people who are doing the, the QR code testing situation and all the sort of possible irregularities there, different other things about his documentation. None of that wound up happening. So what, with those sort of things, do you think those were were things that Hawk looked into and just didn't decided to keep it more more narrow and vague in some ways? Or what do you think was the sort of thought process for, for Alex Hawk and his office and everyone else who must have been weighing in on that on that thinking? Um, and to take it, make it take so long, or how much was just about running out the clock uh, and, and trying to really make it so Djokovic did not have a lot of time? Yeah, I think throughout throughout the week, on the on the Tuesday and Wednesday, as all of that new information about Djokovic's QR code, the Serbian isolation breach, and the travel declaration form were, were emerging, the government was definitely right. assessing all of it. We know Alex Hawke's office was looking into all of those matters and deciding what would form part of the case. So was his department. On Thursday, I believe, we reported that there was a chance that they would... Uh, I, I don't think we went this far in the reporting because it was based on one source and we tried to hedge it a little bit. But we were pretty solid uh, in our thinking on Thursday, or slight, somewhat solid in our thinking on Thursday afternoon that they were going to delay this as late as they could on Friday for just that reason, to, to give him as little time as he could to uh, seek an injunction on the Friday night and potentially give him a minimal chance of actually getting the case heard before Monday, which if Djokovic's team believe they weren't going to have the case heard over the weekend, they may have just got on a flight voluntarily because his first match was on Monday. So I think that there was there was a potentially a thinking inside government that the longer this drags out, the closer to his matches that he is actually in a detention facility not able to train and not able to eat his food to maintain his diet he may just voluntarily get on a plane i don't think we'll ever know the internal thinking of why alex hawk ended up going with the arguments he went with because we know all of those errors that Djokovic made were being strongly considered during the week i think the most likely outcome is he he, he wanted to use arguments that were impenetrable in the sense that they relied they were based solely on his judgment which could not be questioned by a court and and the the part about him, you know, breaching COVID protocols, or according to his Djokovic's timeline, he tested positive on the 16th, didn't find out about it until late on the 17th, but still showed up or later than a event where he was around a bunch of children. We don't know exactly what time, but he says sometime after that event on the 17th, but then still chose to go to an in person interview and photo shoot with Lakeep, knowingly by his by his admission COVID positive, but not telling the Lakeep reporters about this. So that was something that I think was used against him as part of the sort of, is he modeling good behavior uh, kind of argument? So maybe that part did get uh, integrated a bit. But I guess one thing that you mentioned with the timing, one thing that really surprised me 
is, and I don't think this would happen in the U.S., I kind of think, is that the judges were, and the prosec- and, and the government too, were very accommodating and amenable to really fast-tracking this because there's a tennis tournament coming up. Like, they're they sort of holding the court very late on a Friday, coming back on the Saturday, and then having an early Sunday morning hearing all to give Djokovic the best chance of being ready to play at a tennis tournament. You know, when we know there's infamously, people have seen, there's, you know, lots of refugees and other people waiting for their day in court for, for a long, long time. What do you think made the tennis tournament such a relevant part of this legal proceedings schedule? Because I, I, I just imagine, and I've talked to other people in the U.S. too, so many judges in the U.S. would really balk at that as being something they're going to consider in their courtroom. Yeah. Um, and they would just see it as being pretty frivolous. Yeah, certainly that juxtaposition about how flexible the court was to suit Djokovic's needs compared to treatment of refugees is, is, is quite jarring, particularly in Australia, given our past treatment and current treatment of refugees in the same hotel that Djokovic stayed in. Uh, I think they, they, that you're right. They did everything they could to, to give Djokovic the best chance not to play because they were never going to shift their their judgments to to get him an outcome they he wanted, but to actually give him the fair hearing before before he played. Uh, the first judge, Judge Kelly, seemed quite as you, you might remember on the Monday, and then again when he heard the matter, uh, the injunction on the Friday night, he seemed slightly outraged at the government's behaviour and their timing of when they made their second announcement on the Friday. He also, in the first hearing, was pretty heaved off with how they treated Djokovic at the airport. So I think there was a sense that, mm-hmm. the, that the government was making drastic decisions against, against a person and the government was making decisions that were timed in a certain way to give this person the least chance of success. And I think the court wanted to appear to be fair given the international scrutiny on the Australian political and, and judicial system. I think they wanted to be seen to be giving Djokovic absolutely the best chance he could to play while obviously not bending their judicial opinion. Talking about that sort of international perception or perception of how it worked, there was a lot of, certainly in Serbia, a lot of criticism of the system and because obviously they weren't happy with the outcome, but also just the idea, as we saw play out, that basically, to use a tennis analogy, the ball was solely in Alex Hawk's court for a long time, that he had a lot of discretionary individual power in this case to overturn a, a judge's ruling. Uh, I think pe- people found jarring i guess some people that you know is all basically this one guy's discretion he is a politician he's an elected official politician which i'm with i'm sure his own ambitions of, of furthering his political career like any politician has and and you can say obviously there was polling from the age uh, and other others uh, that was the best polling but also other sources as well very very strong sentiment that got quantified against Djokovic in this case the age's polling had 71 percent of people wanting him getting uh, deported, and only 14% wanted him to stay and play. Uh, so very, very decisive. And it was very clear how much political will there was for this result that ultimately happened to get Djokovic out of the country. I guess, what do you make of that sort of, not, uh, of pondering or criticism? And then and then, do you think this will cause any sort of rethinking of any of this? If the Djokovic case will will lead to any sort of reforms or, or changes in how, how things go? Because this really did seem to be something... Fairly or unfairly, and it can be political. I mean, borders can be political and governments can do what they want on some level and certainly have discretion over their borders. That's something people, everyone pretty much admits. But I don't know. Do you think this will this will cause any sort of rethinking of anything? Yeah, I think the politics are fascinating. And, and on whether it is political or not, the government made it political uh, by their arguments in the final case. 
until the arguments in the final case where they made it about vaccine scepticism and anti-vaccine sentiment, they were running the argument that there were clear rules at the border about who could enter. No one else could enter using these rules, they said. Djokovic flouted the rules and they were kicking him out on that basis. There were strict rules about vaccination and that was the extent of it. They weren't making value judgments. They were simply saying, we have strong border policies and he should be no different to anyone else. When they changed the argument to one about him not effectively, it wasn't a character grounds argument technically, that was not a ground they used, but effectively it was a character grounds argument. For them to come out and say that Djokovic is an undesirable person to have in Australia because he has made one or two comments in the space of two years that he's personally opposed to taking a vaccine himself, but has no problem with other people taking it. This is not someone who spruiks anti-vaccine views everywhere he goes. He wasn't coming into Australia to attend anti-vaccine rallies. I, I, I doubt he would have made any comments about vaccines in Australia. He's always been very coy about his own vaccine status. We didn't even know until the court case on the first court case that he definitely wasn't vaccinated. Uh, that was never actually confirmed by anyone. So for the government to use those grounds, many civil rights groups and, and, and um, legal experts in the last 24 hours have said that those grounds were spurious, um, that he didn't actually pose any significant risk to public health. The New South Wales head of the Civil Liberties Council said, we've got 95% of our population vaccinated this guy has made his last comment about vaccines in April 2020, before COVID vaccines even existed. What material effect could he really have on our vaccine uptake? And would his a cancellation of his visa actually spur more anti-vaccine sentiment, which was one of Djokovic's lawyer's arguments? I think the government's thinking is probably that the, the arguments didn't really matter. The vast majority of the population would not be following this legal matter blow by blow they would know the very bare bones of it, that the government is trying to kick this guy out and that he's he's playing legal legal games to stay here. I think on the popularity and, and, and the polling issue, when the government made their first call, I think they would have gauged the reaction to his uh, vaccine exemption based on his Instagram post, which was the night before. It was wall-to-wall -wall negative media coverage. Our talkback lines were filled with anger, comment sections on on news stories filled with people saying, how the hell has this guy got in? What loophole is he using? What is his exemption? Because at that point we didn't know what the exemption actually was. So they made that decision on very solid political ground. I think in the days after that, uh, particularly when he won his first legal case on the Monday, the political, uh, the political dynamics changed a bit and the government appeared a bit incompetent. I think the fact that they lost a case in court to a uh, foreigner about whether their own border policies could be enacted, even though it was on a technicality, it created the perception that they'd mucked this up. Morrison, the Prime Minister, came under a bit of pressure. But I think the middle of last week was a crucial period. The middle of last week was when Djokovic put his, his second Instagram post out, uh, which he said was to, quote, clear up misinformation. But really, he just confirmed a lot of the, the, the allegations against him. And also the issues around the QR code and, and, and the veracity of his actual documents came up actually through your tweets, Ben. And then we, 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 it became clear that he attended this uh, Lakeep function while infectious. There were questions as to whether he attended the children's function while infectious as well. And then he went to, to Belgrade, uh, sorry, to Spain only a short, short time after that and didn't declare it on his travel visa. So in terms of public opinion, I think it swung back to the favour of the government in the middle of last week. And I think their, their certainty about their stance on this matter firmed 
And it was inevitable uh, at that point that they were going to make the second decision if it wasn't inevitable already. Despite the ups and downs in the courts and despite some moments where the government looked like they were floundering or were indecisive or potentially uh, incompetent in their in their um, handling of the, the airport fiasco, I think attitudes among the community were baked in from the moment he arrived and none of those undulations or ups and downs really mattered in the end. There was a clear majority of people based on all polling in several newspapers and several online polls that he was not someone who Australians believe should be here and they believed he arrived here on a technicality and um, and was an entitled person who was trying to flout our, our rules. So despite those ups and downs, I still think the government was on solid political ground throughout it and probably gained some politi- much needed political dividend because they're in a pretty unpopular political moment still. And the sort of sympathy for Djokovic, it seemed to go up and down, basically based on his fortunes. I think people started to feel a little bit bad for him when he was in the detention centre for several days initially. And then he got out and um, was practicing and, you know, happy on court or at least hitting on court and taking photos on court and stuff like that. A very locked down court, by the way, for the first couple of sessions, it was impossible to get get on there. But then he but then, yeah, obviously stuff about the Lakeep interview came out, his statements and sentiment swung against him. And now I think as he's on a plane home and, and leaving defeated and, you know, having these the, the photographers swarm the cars and stuff and take photos of him in the back seat and stuff. And he looks a bit more pathetic in some ways, to use that word, like, it, I think there is more sympathy for his, his plight. Again, the, the issue about him being here, right, that he's sort of a, a menace to public order, but without being necessarily intentionally so in some way, I think it's an interesting one. The the government made the case that he is an anti-vax symbol or icon, uh, you know, effectively, even if not necessarily volitionally or intentionally, that, you know, because he, by the very fact of him showing up to Australia publicly unvaccinated, he is rallying support uh, among this community or sparking support in this in this very small anti-vax movement here. I saw I you know, saw them here. They were outside the tennis um, and some really lunatic signs and other causes that showed up and came out of the woodwork uh, to try to glom onto this moment. Uh, so not a very big woodwork, but a definitely deep plunge into all sorts of fringe elements that were rallying around this this cause, which could not have helped Djokovic. It didn't come up in the in the hearing, but it could not have helped optically to see just what the government was saying would happen actually happen. Yeah, I guess I guess sort of civil rights wise or or, or precedent wise, what does this what does this say about sort of the idea that someone can sort of be out there for having can be kicked out essentially for having on some level the wrong thoughts, even if they're not articulated and even if they're not being weaponized actively. Yeah, it does seem like a, a potential civil civil liberties issue. Again, even if he probably should not have cleared the border in the first place based on rules, the reasons given, I think, set some some potentially troubling precedents. Yeah, I think those two things can be separated. He 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 arrived on with the wrong documentation. That's but that's put to one side now, and we need to look at the precedent that this new this new legal matter raises. And a few human rights groups have come out today and said exactly what you've said, Ben. This idea that someone can be uh, blocked from entering a country, not because of what they actually say or repeatedly and consistently do, but because what some little hints they have given in the past have caused them to be perceived as in a country, that that alone is enough to block them. One uh, human right, prominent human rights, lawyers, rights lawyer in Australia, Greg Barnes, has said that the precedent that sets, for example, is that a future well-known musician who wants to travel to Australia, 
who is not fond of the US-Australia uh, political alliance, military alliance, if they've made statements about that, that, that being an undesirable alliance for the country, even if they're coming here to play music and don't mention the US-Australia alliance, the government might, might take, the, take the view that their presence here would ferment antipathy towards the US-Australia alliance and on that basis they would not allow them. Now that might be a long bow but there are certainly parallels. Djokovic was not coming here to talk about vaccines, he was coming here to play tennis and as far as these lawyers I spoke to yesterday, as far as they could remember, they couldn't remember another case where lawyers, government lawyers had put the argument that someone based on how people perceive them, not what they had explicitly and repeatedly said, should be blocked from entering Australia. So this is not my area of expertise, but according to human rights groups today, it's something they've never seen before. It might be the sign of a government that was quite desperate to search for anything to get the outcome they wanted. But in the long run, it definitely raises questions about what this case might be used for in the future. It got the government a short-term win, but what does it do long-term? And the other interesting element is the federal government, which is this centre-right conservative party, has been accused in recent months, particularly by the um, centre-left Victorian Labor Party Premier Daniel Andrews, of kind of pandering to anti-vax vaccine groups in Australia, pandering to populism and, and people who are against vaccine mandates. We had rolling protests weekly, in fact, at some points daily, protests in Victoria against our Labor Party Premier Daniel Andrews based on a piece of legislation he was putting through the parliament that uh, underpinned uh, the vaccine mandates that are quite strict in Victoria. You effectively needed to be vaccinated to enter any, you still do, to enter any cafe or bar. And also if you're any, if you're any, if you're a worker who needs to leave home to work. Uh, these protests became, there was violent imagery at the protests. People were bringing nooses and, and showing effigies of the Premier burning and there were death threats against the Premier. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison at one point uh, kind of refused to denounce the protesters in as strong uh, in as strong a way as as the Premier and and, and others in the in, in the media and other commentators would have liked, and the Premier accused the the Prime Minister of double speaking to 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 anti-vaxxers to win their votes. He's coming up to an election. The anti-vaccine part of the population is probably has become a bit emboldened in recent months, given the Victorian mandates. And there is a view among some political observers that the Prime Minister's election chances, chances in some ways rely on winning a segment of that vote. So he's been trying to pander to them in the eyes of some. So for the government to take this really hard line against an anti-vaxxer and to use the argument that he was going to ferment anti-vaccine views in the community, it contrasts with the, the federal government's recent behaviour in recent months of potentially trying to win some of these votes. So there's that interesting political element as well. Definitely. Uh, a couple sort of passing questions. One that's been discussed, I don't remember hearing any resolution on it officially tomorrow, yesterday, but I can't imagine its application, but I'm curious for your, your thoughts on this. One of the things that being sort of held over Djokovic in this whole proceeding was this concept of a three-year ban from Australia, which could accompany a deportation order. How likely if that is that at this point, is it automatic, is it sort of, effectively in place now and needs to be removed later because he had, was deported or what is what is the chances of his three-year ban if he chooses to come back to australia which is a whole different question but what what do you think is of the status of the three-year ban and will that remain anything of a, uh, a bargaining chip uh, potentially down the road for Djokovic versus australia and this emerging rivalry 
Yeah, that's an interesting question whether he'll want to come back. That will be a huge story next year when he presumably arrives to come and play again. I imagine the media circus around that, that will be very interesting. But on the three-year ban, I think the Prime, our Prime Minister was talking this morning. I need to go read his full comments. But he said something to the effect of that three-year ban will be um, assessed the next time he applies for a visa. So it's definitely not automatic. And the government was stressing to, to journalists in private last week that it's not something that would be uh, slapped on anyone for any misdemeanor. It does depend on how egregious your your behaviour was that, that that led to your visa being cancelled. So it seems very unlikely that they will ban him for any period of time. I may be wrong and they may hang it over his head for a while to kind of allow themselves to remain in this, in this um, strongman setting, but I don't think it will be applied to him. I think that, yeah, they've been keen to stress in private that it's very much within the purview of the government to to ignore it the next time he applies for a visa. One thing I wanted to say to your previous answer that I just forgot to say after it, on this idea of Djokovic being anti-vax or not, or what the proof of that is, I would say he's had ample opportunity, including by getting vaccinated himself, to put himself more clearly away from the anti-vax perception, which he's been facing pretty pretty clearly and pretty pretty vocally. has been a label attached to him since April 2020. And he hasn't done anything to meaningfully walk that back. I asked him about vaccines at the 2020, uh, I'm sorry, 2021 U.S. Open, and he didn't say no one should get them. They're evil. You're getting microchipped by Bill Gates or whatever other nonsense people say in the anti-vax movement. But he did say he was not in favor of vaccine mandates and just sort of, you know, was ambiguous in this way that still left left questions. And his his staying unvaccinated all the way through mid-December and, you know, when there was a vaccine requirement coming up to do the Australian Open I think again, sort of points towards towards a, a clearer picture that this, he is somewhere on that side of things. Even if, as you said, even if, as we said, he's not beating the drum necessarily, trying to rile people up on this issue vocally. No, you're spot on, and and you've you, you've been doing these periodic reminder tweets that Djokovic could have avoided all of this by being vaccinated, and it's you're clearly right, and it's quite obvious that he doesn't believe in vaccines. He's said a number of things that indicate that. And he's not vaccinated. So I think the government's, uh, the Djokovic argument, his lawyer's argument that there's not enough evidence that he's an anti-vaxxer was quite weak because he clearly is. But I guess the question becomes, is being unvaccinated and pro-choice something that excludes you from public life and travel into Australia now? That's the question Djokovic's lawyers were asking. He's become a pin-up boy of the anti-vaccine movement, but he himself is not a is not a person who actively advocates against taking vaccines. So that's the tricky, that's the tricky question that's been asked. Yeah, it's interesting also hearing Aussies refer to the anti-vax movement as pro-choice. That's not a term we have in the US at all in terms of framing it. So it's been interesting just semantically there as well. One of the other issues that came up just sort of tying up some loose ends in this whole story, uh, the refugees at the hotel were very much the sort of side characters in Djokovic's detention for a while there, and this interesting confluence of topics that came with Djokovic, somewhat by happenstance, being put in the same building as them um, and drawing a lot of international spotlight. Do you think that the international spotlight that was on them and the criticism for this and the rallies that were held outside uh, will do anything uh, for their cause or, or for reform on that area, or are they still pretty much where we found them in the first place in this in this narrative? I think quite depressingly, the answer is probably no. Yeah. Australians have become largely immune from stories. They've become immune from hearing the criticism from international human rights groups and UN agencies about our refugee policies. We've had these really strict policies since the Conservative leader, Tony Abbott, was elected in 
2013, he was elected largely on a platform of turning around asylum seeker boats, many of which were uh, collapsing at sea and many deaths were occurring in the oceans above to the north of Australia. He, he, he was an anti-refugee prime minister. He was embraced by the public on that policy. Our centre-left Labor Party federally ended up kind of acquiescing and adopting those same policies because the political risk of them appearing to be pro-refugee and not, not joining the government on these hardline policies was deemed too large. The wedge, the wedge issue was uh, pertinent in their minds and it still is. So we effectively have both of our major political parties quite comfortable with our current border policies and our offshore detention policies. There's very little political will to change anything in that space. There are a couple of issues here and there when it's, a, for example, a, a, a young family of Sri Lankan refugees was housed in a, uh, in a town in Queensland, a small town in Queensland, and were accepted by the community and became a very loved part of their community and then were forced uh, out of that community and put back into detention because they were deemed to not be genuine refugees. And that issue became a, a national media issue. The Labor Party spoke up on that issue because there was a face to the story and there was lots of sympathy for that family. But more broadly on the plight of all of these men who are still stuck in detention, there's, there's minimal media attention, minimal political will, except for minor parties like the Greens. And our kind of social political culture is not, it, it does, does not have a very kind of solid consciousness about these issues. We really are really are accepting of these policies, which is sad. To get to a couple other last thoughts here, this is obviously more maybe more of a tennis question than a political beat reporter question, but obviously you dealt with this organization as well. This whole story, Tennis Australia, like how this has been a really flagship organization in a lot of ways uh, for Australia internationally, hosting this major sporting event. They're getting a lot of criticism, certainly within tennis, and Craig Tiley has made himself the face of this organization is going to bear the brunt of that for their handling this, for trying so hard to get Djokovic as a sort of square unvaccinated peg into this round hole and, re- and really, you know, kind of derailing or overshadowing the whole tournament in the process. What, what do you think as, as a local, uh, as someone obviously who was, you know, hearing from them and hearing their side of stories as well um, in this whole situation, what do you think this does to Tennis Australia, Craig Tiley, their perception everyone's sort of saying honestly that they can't imagine Craig Tiley stays in this job uh you know beyond this tournament uh, at this point but what do you what do you think about how this locally affects the the reputation of the of the tennis I think tennis Australia comes out of it undoubtedly looking significantly weakened looking at the tabloid newspapers today the Melbourne Herald Sun there's a story from a very experienced sports writer Robert Craddock who lives in Queensland saying that Craig Tiley must resign uh, there was a story in the Age and Sydney Morning Herald, kind of the more progressive newspapers uh, that by a, a writer called Malcolm Knox last week saying the same thing. So the sentiment among the, the narrative in the media is that Craig Tiley was quite explicitly told that Djokovic, a person in Djokovic's situation would not be allowed in, but he looked for other advice, potentially tried to kind of shop for advice from different government agencies to create the impression that Djokovic would get in. Now, the counter argument to that is that there was conflicting advice, which in some cases there actually was, and there was unclear advice from the vaccine advisory body, which I referenced earlier. So Tylee does have a does have an argument that in some people's minds might 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 have legs. But 
on the whole, I think there's no doubt that Tennis Australia look like they've um, mucked this up. They've been very quiet since it all blew up. Oh, yeah. I think he did He did an interview with me, which lasted about 15 minutes. He did a three-minute interview on television and then another short interview with, with, with a different newspaper. So I was having this conversation with a government, senior government official yesterday about how it would look when Craig Tiley hands over the trophy on the final night. And this is a very senior person in the Andrews government, and they said that they're not sure if Tiley will be able to, to do that role because the public sentiment is that, he has has marked this up. And I don't know how a big crowd at Rod Laver Arena would, would react to seeing him uh, in a ceremonial setting as if nothing's happened. I think as the Australian Open's going on, the Tennis Australia board will probably be too busy and Craig Tyler will be too busy putting the tournament on. But people in the government, the Victorian government here, definitely think there are questions to be answered. There probably needs to be some sort of inquiry into what's going on here. It's a, it's a, it's a, failing on so many parts and it should never have got here. And I think Tylee and Jane Herdlicker, the Tennis Australia boss, who's a very prominent businesswoman with close links to many federal uh, government ministers, both have questions to answer. I'm not saying they are necessarily the sole bearers of blame here, but we don't, we have, we still don't have many of the answers we deserve on this. And Tennis Australia of all the, of all the parties to this issue, I think comes out of it with the most pressure on them. I think so too. And I think that Djokovic particularly, if I was Djokovic and I was stepping back and looking at this and obviously, you know, not being vaccinated still, as I, as like you said, I do periodically tweet and I've hopefully done with that now that this would be, uh, you know, something that he could have avoided by just getting vaccinated. But I really think that he get, got a very uh, misleadingly rosy impression of a bunch of things in Australia uh, before leaving that would have come from Craig Tiley, that would have come from Tennis Australia, that his arrival would be popular which completely backfired right away from the Instagram post that stoked a lot of anger. And that, you know, and just the idea of sort of being an, an exempt athlete coming and announcing your exemption on the way, just all of it just didn't work and pilot completely misread the landscape in a lot of ways. In some ways, I keep coming back to this thing where the tournament doesn't have Djokovic on any of the posters. They have like 20 different versions of their poster. I haven't counted, but a lot of different versions of poster. And the nine-time champion going for the record uh, is explicitly, you know, conspicuously not on there. Uh, he was on the posters in New York for the U.S. Open, uh, but not here. And I'll show you. They kind of know that he's uh, persona non grata in a in a real way. Two last questions. Hopefully, the journey following this whole proceedings on various technological services uh, offered by the Australian courts, uh, which ended with it being on YouTube, and uh, and actually they were allowing the verdict to be shown on live TV which I, I sense is pretty unusual here. What do you think, do you think this will change functionally uh, how courts work here in terms of technology? Will it become more more transparent, open to open to broadcasts? Because it does seem like Djokovic's arrival, I joked about this, but I do think it's sort of true. Like if, if he did anything positive, it was accelerating, you know, the court's readiness to adopt uh, technology uh, in this day and age. Yeah, I think some of the courts have, so I think the only reason that the, the court um, web streaming system was inadequate during the first hearing was because of how many people were on it right that zoom live stream uh website that they have where there's little windows of all the judges in their various offices it usually works fine for court hearings when there's you know 10 or 15 people and a couple of journalists on them as they usually are but clearly their servers just weren't inadequate for the i think there was eighty-five thousand for the second hearing so i don't know how many there were for the first one but i think youtube yeah youtube seems like the the, the, the better option, given you can have an unlimited number of people on it. 
Uh, I'm not a court reporter, so I don't know how advanced some of the courts are. But from my little experience with the courts during COVID, they're all they're all pretty good with technology. So I think maybe they got they copped a bad international rap given the issues on the first hearing. And then lastly, for you, speaking of of overwhelming interest and and popularity, just for you, like personally, what's this what's this two weeks been like? Seeing I've seen like your your Twitter follower count probably roughly. I don't know what it was exactly at the beginning, but close to double, I'm guessing, in this time, just sort of being the guy, you and you and Karen Sweeney, who's the AAP reporter on the courts, both sort of leading all these international people through this uh, maze of, of things. Uh, just what's it, what's now that you're have this put this chapter behind you, what is, what's just what it been like for you on a personal, professional level being at the center of this uh, this storm? Yeah, it's it's been a bit crazy and and and, and unusual because for me, there's no difference in the way I'm reporting this to any other story. I have, you know, there's a source, there's a couple of sources in tennis Australia who have helped me in the early day, a couple of sources in the Victorian government who are very helpful. And then along the way, people in the federal government who've been helpful. These are people apart from one or two of them, people who I already knew going into this, which is what allowed um, the stories to be written in the first couple of days and going forward. But the to- the massive difference obviously in this case is that the, the world is, is, following this story compared to every other one where it's they're, they're very usually niche stories so it's it's been unusual having people message me from all around the world and getting you know dozens of requests from weird radio stations and <laughs> television networks to do interviews every day I'm sure you're pretty used to this Ben but it's been really fun and doing all of this media like this podcast has allowed me to understand the story much better than um, than I would have if I didn't have to think about how to explain it to lay lay audiences because it has been a bloody complex story and sometimes trying to explain the points of it that even we don't understand very well to people who have a far lesser understanding of the political and social structures in Australia has been has been difficult but it's been it's been an awesome experience I hope Australia really my, my, my hope is that Australia doesn't come out of it looking really silly and really petty and incompetent I still haven't got a good read on how the international community I don't really think there is anything called the international community. Every every country has yeah. its own its own uh, psyche, but I, I I feel like we look a bit stupid. I know you have a different view. I just hope we we come out of it looking not like a bunch of a bunch of petty idiots. Well, I had a different view as we heard on the first show before the the first initial hearing. I do think there have been some bunglings of things at points uh, along the way. So I'm I'm more receptive than I was a week ago, honestly, to sort of. Australia comes out of this looking rough arguments than I was then. But I do think ultimately that things will will calm down. I think the big sort of unknown that we still don't know is how Djokovic is really going to respond to this when he actually takes the time to try to address this, try to shape his own narrative. It's going to be a while. I think I don't think he's going to, you know, call a press conference right away during the Australian Open. I think he's going to lay low for for a bit. So we'll see. We haven't totally heard the rest of the story. It'll also depend on how much this winds up derailing his trajectory. Long term, you know, if he chooses to get vaccinated, if he, you know, leaves the sport is, is obviously an extreme option. But one, if he feels that strongly about vaccination and there's not going to be space for it, it's potentially on the table. I, I hope it doesn't happen, um, but it is there as a possibility. So we just don't know what this sort of inflection point will lead to for, for Australia, for for Djokovic, for a lot. But but you thank you, Paul, for helping us with everything we can know possibly in both these episodes. Um, and yeah, look forward to seeing you at the tennis. No, thanks a lot for having me, and I hope hope I've been able to explain a bit to listeners and not not spoken in gobbledygook uh, as I feel like I have a little bit in this podcast. No, thank you again for having me.
Cheers. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. So thank you very much once more for Paul Sakal being on the show. He's been great and I think has really made this very confusing process so much clearer for for me and hopefully for listeners as well. And it's been lovely, lovely having him back on the show. Shout out as well to, to Karen Sweeney of AAP, as we said, for also doing a great job on this whole saga, which hopefully is now pretty much behind us. And what's not behind us is the Australian Open, which is coming up. And we're very excited to start talking about that soon. But first, we want to thank our Patreon backers who thank every episode, including one new backer, Fatima S. So thank you to Fatima for joining. And our Slam Champ backers who thank every episode, Antonio Maycumber, Sean Mulroy, Leah Williams, Mary Carrillo, Susanna W., Ashley Keel, James Hindle, Liz Kennel, Anna Valinder, Jonathan Weinbaum, Timothy Liu, and Jean Simeon. And our two GOAT backers, Pam Shriver and J.O.D. If you want to support the show yourself, you can do so on our Patreon, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And with that, we will put our troubles on a plane out of here. Enjoy the tennis. Bye, guys. But you've got that look so critical Kentucky, baby